0: John chapter 20, I'll be preaching in verses 24 through 31. John chapter 20, verses 24 through 31. And as you turn there in your Bibles, let's go to the Lord once again in prayer and ask his blessing on the reading and preaching of his word. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have given to us an infallible rule of faith and practice inspired by your Holy Spirit, an accurate and trustworthy account of your wonderful works to redeem us and to save us. Lord, we pray that as your word is read and preached this morning that would bear much fruit in our hearts. In Jesus' name, amen. Hear God's word this morning from John chapter 20 verses 24 through 31. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Amen. Uh, My father told me a story one day as I was questioning the truthfulness of a story that he had shared with me. He said that at one time when he was a young boy, his father was sharing a story that seemed too extraordinary for him to believe, and so he looked at his dad and said, I wish your mom was still alive. To which my grandfather replied, oh really, why is that? So I could find out if the things that you were saying are really true. Didn't go very well for my dad that day. And it didn't actually go very well for me when I was questioning the truthfulness of one of his stories. Some claims seem so extraordinary they are difficult to believe. So we have expressions that we use that you have to see it in order to what? Believe it, that's right. In business, we've become so distrusting of people and their word and their commitments You'll see little signs when you go into a business that will read something like, in God we trust, all others bring cash. You got it. Some of you don't know what that is. There used to be this paper we carried in our pockets. It was called cash. No one wants to be thought of as gullible. No one wants to be a sucker for an old wives' tale. And many people bring this kind of thinking into Christianity as they consider the claims of the Bible. They do seem extraordinary, don't they? We believe that God created the world by the word of his power in the space of six days, all very good, out of nothing. We believe that a great fish swallowed a prophet and that he lived in the belly of that fish for three days. We believe that a virgin had a baby. And we believe that a crucified man who died came back to life and was resurrected on the third day. The claims are extraordinary. It's true. So some have taken it upon themselves to demythologize the Bible. Higher critics like Bultman are notorious this. They remove the extraordinary claims of the Bible. They remove the miracles of the Bible. They remove the resurrection. And so rather than saying that Jesus arose physically from the grave, they'll say things like, Jesus arose in the hearts of the disciples. The Bible's nothing more than archetypal narrative, they will say. A kind of fable with Good moral stories for us to learn from. The problem with this kind of thinking, of course, is once you go down this road, all things are are on the table. Then, aren't they? It's hard to turn back once you slide down into this sort of demythologizing practice. If you question the historicity of the Red Sea and Jonah and the great fish, and you view them as nothing more than myths, what's to stop you from viewing the resurrection as nothing more than a myth? The Apostle Paul considered this in 1 Corinthians 15. Listen to what he wrote. If there's no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. So for Paul, everything was on the line. If there's no resurrection from the dead, then Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead. And if Jesus wasn't resurrected from the dead, you and I are still in our sins, and our faith is futile. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished, Paul concludes. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, if that's all the hope there is, in this life only and not in the life to come, Paul concludes, we are all people most... To be pitied. When we think about the resurrection, everything is on the line. It's absolutely important that we believe that the resurrection actually occurred, that it physically occurred, that it was a historical event. But here's the thing you don't have to see Jesus to believe in him. You don't have to see the resurrected Lord in order to have faith that Jesus was resurrected. This is the purpose of John's gospel. I mean, he tells us right here in in two verses, the reason that he's authored this gospel is so that those who will never have an opportunity to see Jesus, who will never have an opportunity to see the resurrected Lord, so that those who were not eyewitnesses to the resurrection, so that those who do not see can believe. That's the purpose of his gospel. That's what he's telling us. He's telling us you don't have to see Jesus to believe in him. In fact, if you stipulate seeing before believing, you will never believe. There'll never be enough evidence to satisfy you. John has presented us with sufficient evidence sufficient eyewitness testimony so that our faith is an informed faith the claims are extraordinary but they're not unreasonable and we're called to consider them and we're called to consider them because you don't have to see jesus in order to believe in him so let's look at this passage together thomas for us becomes an example of how some people respond to the claim that Jesus has been resurrected. How did Thomas respond to the claim that Jesus has been resurrected? Well, he required seeing before believing. You ever met anybody like that when you talk to them about the faith? They require seeing before believing. Now, Thomas, just stop and consider here, we often refer to Thomas as who? What do we call him? doubting Thomas. That's right. I think it's a little unfair. I mean, this is one example of many, but Thomas, in terms of a disciple, is someone to be admired as we read in the Gospels. When Jesus was going to raise Lazarus from the dead, uh, even in the face of death uh, from the Pharisees and the Sanhedrin, it's Thomas who says, who tells the disciples, let's go with him, that we too may die with him. And so Thomas, in this regard, is a disciple to be admired. He is one who heard the teachings of Jesus. He is one who saw the miracles and signs of Jesus, who walked with Jesus, who shared meals with Jesus. And one who may have been there at the foot of the cross when Jesus was crucified. So perhaps all of that is burned into his memory. Perhaps he is filled with such grief and anguish so that when the disciples report to him, we've seen the Lord, he disbelieves it. Jesus had appeared the same day of his resurrection. He appeared to his disciples who had gathered together for the first church service of the church gathered together behind locked doors for fear of the Jews, and Jesus appears in the midst of them and speaks peace to them. A week later, or eight days by the Jewish calendar, they are gathered again, gathered together again, and they are once again, what? Behind closed doors, why? Presumably for fear of the Jews, and this time, Thomas is with them. And they tell him, We've seen the Lord. Now, Thomas has been hearing the reports. He's probably heard the reports of Mary Magdalene that she went to the empty tomb. He's probably heard the reports from Peter and the apostle John that they went and they saw the empty tomb and the, the grave clothes were there. They probably have heard the reports from Mary Magdalene that she saw Jesus and mistook him for the gardener. He probably heard the reports from the other disciples who were on the road to Emmaus. The reports have gone out that Jesus is resurrected, and yet here is Thomas filled with doubts, and so he stipulates his faith in Jesus, demanding evidence. What does he say? Look at verse 25, unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails and place my finger into the mark of the nails. Jesus was crucified, he's saying. And unless I can, with my own eyes and my own hands, see and touch where the nails pierced his hands, unless I can place my hand in his side where the Roman soldier's spear pierced his side, and unless I can see it and touch it, what does he conclude? Verse 25, look at his remarkable conclusion. What does he say? I will never believe. He concludes, now I want you to imagine that you have received summons to serve on a jury and you are selected to serve on this jury and the defendant is charged with stealing a car, robbing a bank, and shooting the guard, okay? Stealing a car, robbing a bank, shooting a guard and you are going to sit on this trial for this individual who's charged with these crimes, is it necessary for you to have been an eyewitness in order for you to conclude that he did these crimes? Some of you are wondering, what do we have in this country? Reasonable doubt. And so what the jury is charged with is to examine the evidence and conclude Beyond a reasonable doubt, as a result of the evidence, would a reasonable person conclude that this individual did these things? And so the prosecution, they will present their evidence. Perhaps there was an eyewitness who saw a a car that matched the description of the stolen car drive into the parking lot of the bank that was robbed. Perhaps the teller who was behind the counter at the bank will appear before the court and identify the person charged with robbing the bank. Perhaps the guard who was shot by the defendant will be there to identify, oh yes, that is the man who in fact shot me. Perhaps forensic evidence will be presented that match and identify the wound of the guard with the caliber of the bullet used to the gun found on the defendant when he was arrested. And so what the jury will deliberate then is, will, as a result of this evidence, a reasonable person conclude, based upon this evidence, that this individual committed these crimes. So the question as we think about the evidence of Jesus' resurrection is not, is there evidence that he's resurrected from the dead? you Have ever heard anyone say that? Oh, there's no evidence that Jesus resurrected from the dead. Really? There's no evidence that Jesus resurrected from the dead? What about all the evidence that's recorded for us in the Bible? So the question is not, is there any evidence? The question is, Is there evidence beyond reasonable doubt? Would a reasonable person, upon examining the evidence of Jesus' resurrection, conclude that Jesus was, in fact, resurrected? Can they believe in Jesus without seeing Jesus? So let's just stop and think about the evidence for a minute as we're nearing the end of John's Gospel. We have six signs that John presents for us, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. Feeding of the 5,000, turning the water into wine, healing of the official son, raising Lazarus from the dead. We have the eyewitness testimony of those who walked with Jesus and can testify that, yes, he was a real historical person, that he walked and talked, he ate and slept, and they were with him and they touched him. He didn't appear to be a phantom to them. He was an actual real person. You could go back and examine the evidence that there was a religious trial of Jesus, and so the Sanhedrin were involved in charging Jesus. There was a civil trial for Jesus where the Romans sat in judgment upon Jesus. There was a public crucifixion of Jesus where many had gathered together in Jerusalem for the Passover, and he was crucified in the sight of them all. We have the evidence that a Roman soldier thrust the spear into the side of Jesus, verifying that he had actually died. We have the Roman guards there at the garden tomb where Jesus' body had been laid by two wealthy, respectable men who saw the dead body of Jesus and placed it in the tomb. We have the, the eyewitness evidence that there were those who went to the tomb and saw that the tomb, had been, that the tomb was empty and they saw the grave clothes. We have the eyewitness evidence that there were people who saw Jesus resurrected after he had died. Including, as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, his appearance to more than 500 people at one time, many of whom are still alive, Paul says. So what's he encouraging the Corinthians to do? If you want to investigate these claims, you should do it. Look into it. Go ask some of the people who saw the resurrected Lord and they will verify the truthfulness of these claims. Thomas is to do the same thing here. He should have been able to believe based upon all the evidence that he had had of walking with Jesus, listening to the teachings of Jesus, observing the signs and the miracles of Jesus. He should have been able to have faith in the resurrection based upon the testimony of his fellow disciples alone. But instead... He stipulated his faith upon evidence. He required seeing before believing. And friend, let me tell you this morning, you don't have to see Jesus in order to believe in him. In fact, that's what Jesus tells Thomas. Let's look at this passage. Jesus tells Thomas that you're blessed, in fact. Blessed are those who have not seen and still believe. Jesus appears to Thomas. Not only does he appear to Thomas, he reveals himself to Thomas. He gathers together and he instructs Thomas. He commands him to do what? What's he tell him? The very words that Thomas had spoken in private, Jesus shouts from the rooftop, you might say. He tells Thomas and commands him in verse 27, put your finger here and see my hands. Put out your hand and place it in my side. Oh, you want evidence, Thomas, that I'm a real person and not just a phantom? You want evidence that I've been physically resurrected from the grave? Well, come over here and touch me. You can look and see for yourself that the scars are are here. There is evidence that the very person that you saw on that cross is me, and I am standing before you alive today. And so he tells him what? Don't disbelieve, but believe. Have faith. The evidence is sufficient. Why would Jesus reveal himself to Thomas in that way? Well, verse 29, after Thomas confesses his faith in Jesus, my Lord and my God, Jesus tells him, have you believed because you've seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have what? Believed. So what's Jesus saying here? He's saying, yeah, he's not condemning his faith or his confession of faith. He affirms it. Thomas has had finally the appropriate response. He has heard the reports, and now he has seen Jesus and he confesses his faith in Jesus. And so Jesus asked him rhetorically, have you believed because you've seen me? Well, of course, now he believes, now that he has seen Jesus. But Jesus now says, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Why did Jesus reveal himself to Thomas? He revealed himself to Thomas for our benefit. The apostles, these disciples, are sent out by Jesus, and they are those that the apostle Paul calls in Ephesians 2.20, the foundation of the church, that the church is built on what? The foundation of the apostles and prophets. The church is able to go back, and look at the testimony and the evidence presented by those who walked with Jesus, talked with Jesus, learned from Jesus, saw him crucified and saw him resurrected. And the church is built on that kind of foundation. If you go out to a job site where a home is being built on a slab, you will find, if you can catch it before the framing goes up, you will catch along the exterior portion of that foundation, bolts cemented into the foundation of the house to be built. Big bolts. You know what they're used for? Some of you have been, you've built a house, you know exactly what they're used for. They do what with those bolts? They bolt the frame of the house to the foundation that has been poured. And so you'll be able to look and see that the frame of the house along those exterior walls How is the house held together? Well, part of the way that the house is held together is that the walls are literally bolted to the concrete foundation that the house sits upon. The stronger the connection to the foundation, the stronger the house. The weaker the connection of the house to the foundation, the weaker the house. So Paul, in Ephesians 2.20, he says that the apostles and prophets, they are the what? The foundation of the church. So how do we strengthen our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ? You strengthen your what? Just like you would strengthen the house, you would strengthen your faith by your connection to what? Here it is, to God's word. This is the foundation laid by the apostles and prophets. It is what God has revealed to them. They have inscripturated it for our benefit, for our faith. And the greater our connection to the foundation that has been laid for us, the stronger our faith. The question, and we know this all too well, those of us who live in the low country know the the real true threat of hurricanes. The question is not, when is this, if a storm is going to come? We know a hurricane is going to come at some point. Maybe one in a hundred years, but we know that a storm will come. So the question is not if a storm will come. The question is when. For many of us, the same is true about our faith. The question is not if we will struggle with doubts from time to time. But the question is, when will we do so? We might go through... A difficult time in our life, a dark night of the soul, death of a child, death of a spouse, cancer, sickness, hardship. A church leader that we looked up to who discipled us, who has a moral failure. who might go through a bankruptcy, we might go through a divorce. All sorts of storms in this life that we will go through at some point in our life each and every one of us how do you endure such hurricanes in life how do you get through with your faith intact the stronger your connection to the foundation the stronger your house the same is especially true of a church isn't it the weaker the church's connection to the foundation the weaker the teaching the biblical teaching of the church the weaker the worship is and its theological content, the weaker its connection to the foundation established for us by the apostles and the prophets. So I hope you're asking this morning, well, how do I strengthen my faith? Strengthen your faith by your connection to the foundation poured for us. You don't have to see Jesus in order to believe in him, but you can strengthen your faith by, by the foundation that's been laid. And there is for us the promise of blessing when we do. Look at this conclusion that John reaches here. For those who believe without seeing, there is the promise of eternal life. John is setting the stage to conclude his gospel, and he provides for us the purpose of writing his gospel in verses 30 and 31. He says that Jesus, verse 30, did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. I've said this a million times from this pulpit. The signs are like what? Evidence in a trial. It is evidence presented for us to consider that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so John says here, Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples. There's a whole lot of things that John could have recorded They're not written in this book, but he has given these. He has written these. Why? So that you can believe in Jesus without seeing Jesus. (laughs) That's what he says. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And so for those of you who already believe, you are to go back, evaluate this evidence so that your faith may be strengthened. And so for those of you who have never believed, you're to evaluate this evidence and it is to evoke from you a response. You're to believe the testimony. You are to believe the evidence. You're to believe the assertions that Jesus really is the Christ. And when you do, look at the promise that by believing you may have what? Life in his name. Heard someone say one time, a smart man a whole lot smarter than me, say that God gives us the knowledge we need to be obedient, not the knowledge we desire to be omniscient. That's true, isn't it? If we had all the knowledge that we desired, we we would be who? We would be essentially as smart as God. God doesn't give us all the knowledge we desire to be omniscient, but He does give us the knowledge that we need to be obedient. So a person who rejects Jesus as Christ, the Messiah, it says far more about their own hearts than it does the evidence that's been given to us. The evidence is true. It's trustworthy. It's reliable. It's reasonable. And so for a person who rejects the evidence... It reveals that their heart is still sinful. That they love their sin more than they love the life that has been offered them. And I know what you're thinking right now. Well, listen, Pastor, if only I could have been there, then my faith would be stronger. If only I could have seen Jesus. If only I could have touched Jesus, then my faith too would have been stronger. But right now I struggle, and sometimes I have doubts. Let me tell you this morning, perfect faith is not a prerequisite in order to believe in Jesus Christ. Imperfect faith is still faith. Just as the inscription on a coin does not negate the value of the currency, so the imperfection of the faith does not detract from the genuineness of that faith. You remember what's recorded in Matthew 28? Right before Jesus gives his disciples the Great Commission, Jesus has revealed himself to them. Matthew twenty-eight seventeen says, When they saw him, they worshipped him. Of course, that's what they should have done. Here's Jesus resurrected. He, he appears to them, and they worship him. And then Matthew records for us, But some doubted. Jesus doesn't stop the whole thing and say, Well, listen, I was going to commission you guys to establish the church and to spread the gospel to the ends of the earth, but now, because some of you doubted, plan's over. Forget it. Everything's off the table. No, their faith was true and genuine, and yet they still struggled with doubt. And yet Jesus is still pleased to receive, to receive their imperfect faith, and call him to serve him. I love that little verse in Mark chapter 9, verse 24. Jesus is interacting with the father of a sick child, and the man tells Jesus about Jesus healing his his son. The man tells Jesus, I believe. I believe, Jesus, that you can do this. I have faith that you can do this. Help my unbelief. I feel like that a lot of times. Lord, I believe, but my faith is imperfect, and I still struggle with doubts sometimes. Will you help me? And you know what the Lord is pleased to do? He's pleased to receive our faith as true and genuine and help us. So let's go to him in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you are so kind and gracious. To save us when we were, are dead in our trespasses and sins. If you waited for us to have faith, we would never come to faith. But because you grant us the gift of faith, we are able to come to you and you are pleased in your grace to receive us. Lord, we pray this morning that you would help our unbelief. You would help our imperfect faith you would help our doubts, forgive us for it, for we know it's sinful, and yet we know it's the work of your Holy Spirit to transform us and to change us. And so, Lord, we ask that you would strengthen us, strengthen our connection to the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Help us to truly have assurance that we don't have to see Jesus in order to believe in him. Strengthen us even now as as we come and receive the sacrament of the Lord's Supper. May what we see point us to Christ. May there be for us union with Christ as we receive it by faith. We ask and pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.